Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. The city of Halifax is beautiful and it has a certain charm that's hard to find anywhere else. So this charm may lull you into a false sense of security, but Nova Scotia has the highest crime rates of all of the Atlantic provinces and one of the worst homicide rates per capita of the eastern provinces. When I told you about the murder of Brenda Way, I touched on how the Nova Scotia sex industry has been the target of many violent crimes, but the murders of Halifax span beyond those shoved to the side of society. Sometimes violent acts occur unprovoked, and while they're very uncommon, they do happen, so watch your back. It's a dangerous world out there, and the case of Jonathan Reeder truly attests to this. Get ready, because things about to get shady. Jonathan Reeder lived in the Spryfield area of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Spryfield centers around a large, beautiful lake named Long Lake. This area is generally residential, and it rests just outside of the downtown of Halifax, so people live there without paying the high prices of city living, while living a short distance from the action of downtown. The layout of Spryfield is highly variable. There are suburban areas, gorgeous lakefront properties, densely packed housing, luxury apartments, and apartments that are barely being held together. The Spryfield area is generally oriented around one central road, the Herring Cove Road. All roads in the area are either primarily or secondarily attached to that road. Spryfield is known for its amazing trails and parks, and the park around Long Lake even has a waterfall tucked away with a log bridge across the steep embankments of the surrounding falls. Jonathan grew up in a fairly well-off area, not extremely wealthy, but comfortable. He lived near the beautiful Sheffield Park and within a few minutes walk from a small shopping center with a large grocery store and a few other small businesses. He lived at home with his two parents, and he had a relatively close relationship with both. In 2000, Jonathan began attending high school at Halifax West High. Following his 2005 graduation, Jonathan had enrolled in St. Mary's University, a university located in downtown Halifax. In August of 2005, Jonathan was 19 years old, meaning that he could finally start going out to the bars and drinking legally. And, as with most 19-year-olds, he intended to take full advantage of these new opportunities. Jonathan would typically go to Pacifico Bar and Grill, which is kind of a misleading name. This isn't the sit-down bar I would picture when I hear that name. It's a dance club, and people go there as a clubbing situation, not as a casual bar trip. Pacifico is one of the more popular bars in Halifax. In its original location, it had a few open dance floors and a fair bit of space. The dance floors even had light-up tiles, so it's not surprising that it was his location of choice. 
On August 17th of 2005, Jonathan and a few friends were headed out to Pacifico for the night. When they got there, they started drinking, dancing, and having fun. They were having a great night. Pacifico closes at 2am each night, so as the time approached 2, the group of them were getting ready to head out. While he was at the club, Jonathan had met a woman and he left with her at 1.57am, leaving his friends at the club. The two were seen walking out of the bar and began their trek home. Sometime on his walk between his start on Salter Street and Dutch Village Road, his walking companion and him had parted ways. This distance would have taken him about an hour and 20 minutes to walk, so it's kind of hard to tell where they would have departed. On Dutch Village Road, Jonathan went into a gas station and got a few snacks around 3.20am. And at that point, he was alone. Jonathan continued on his trek home, which would take him about 40 minutes. But he never actually made it back home. At 4.10am, the Halifax Regional Police received a phone call from a municipal worker reporting a man unconscious and bleeding in the intersection of Radcliffe and Dunbrack streets. So like, as far as I can tell, directly in the middle of the intersection. First responders arrived on scene and quickly took the unconscious and heavily bleeding man to a nearby hospital, but while he was there, he succumbed to his injuries. Investigators were able to identify the deceased man as 19-year-old Jonathan Reeder. Jonathan's body was then taken to the coroner's office for an autopsy. The autopsy found that Jonathan had been severely beaten and his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Investigators quickly went to work to determine how this man ended up here. Initial searches uncovered the details of Jonathan's night. They showed that he had gone to Pacifico with a group of friends, but the group said they lost track of him that night after he had gone off to talk to someone. Next, the investigators approached the club owner for access to CCTV footage from the night he had been murdered. When investigators were given the footage, they noticed the woman leaving with Jonathan. They approached Jonathan's friends once again with this footage to see if they knew who the woman in the footage was. None of them could identify her. Each friend was formally questioned for the investigation, although they weren't truly suspect since the footage showed that they had left at a different time than Jonathan. Next, investigators traced the route Jonathan would have had to have taken to get home. Along this route, they interrogated people who lived in the area or may have been working that late in the evening. This led them to the gas station on Dutch Village Road. Here they learned that Jonathan was seen by himself, getting snacks as reported by the gas station clerk and confirmed by CCTV footage. While this made the woman who was initially traveling with Jonathan a less likely culprit, they still needed to locate her for any information she may have for the night in question. But the investigation had stalled when the woman from the footage couldn't be located, and when all other people who could potentially be linked to the murder had been ruled out, the investigative leads were exhausted. At this point, Jonathan's murder was beginning to look like a random act of violence. The idea of a random murder is terrifying in general, but it also provides a lot of investigative issues. Unless there's some DNA at the scene or some sort of eyewitness, a random attack is very hard to pin on someone. But... Just about a year after Jonathan's murder, tips began pouring into his parents Linda and David Reeder. At first, they thought little of it, but after what they described as persistent and consistent tips from the community, 
His parents finally felt they could put a name on Jonathan's killer, and they took their theory to the police. Around 2002, a new gang formed in the Spryfield area known as the Murda Squad. So that's M-U-R-D-A Squad. This gang had reportedly been stealing, assaulting, and terrorizing the community, and based on what the community knew about them, they believed that these people were prime suspects in the slaying of Jonathan Reeder. The term gang is a bit misleading here because they only had about 10 to 15 members and associates, and it was a very tight-knit and loyal group. The murder squad was said to have a violent initiation ritual that if passed, the person could join. Basically, they would beat the person severely, and if they didn't squeal, they would be allowed entrance. This group was known to carry around bats, large sticks, knives, and a few other types of weapons. This group was also well known for their unprovoked violence and highly aggressive nature. There are numerous reports of assaults, threats, street theft, and car theft. On Reddit, someone who reportedly lived in the area said that the murder squad was well known to most youth in the community. This Redditor told of a story of how they used to sneak out at night to smoke weed in a nearby park, and how one night in 2006, they had snuck out with a friend to do just that. They were at a park right beside the site where Reader was murdered when they saw a group of guys approaching. At first, they thought nothing of it, until the group got a bit closer and the Redditor recognized them as members of the murder squad. The two ran off immediately when they recognized the group and the group chased them. Eventually, the group stopped tailing them and they got away. But this supposedly solidified their belief that the murder squad could very well be responsible for Jonathan's murder. I have seen people question if it really was the group because there is up to a $150,000 reward for information on this case, and people don't understand why they wouldn't turn on other group members for the reward. This is a fair point, but also the group is small and tight-knit. The members may be less inclined to turn on each other, and for all we know, everyone in the group who knows about this shares responsibility for the murder. The murder squad consists mostly of male members, but it appears that there are a couple of female members in the group. I can't help but wonder if the woman who left with Jonathan had some sort of association with the group, and that's why she's never stepped forward with the information. That is purely speculation, and I have nothing to support that idea other than the fact that I don't understand why she hasn't come forward saying that she was the one with Jonathan that night. Aside from speculation, I do have a few pieces of information that may be important in terms of this case. Jonathan's walk from Dutch Village to the intersection of Radcliffe and Dunbrack would have taken about 36 minutes. He was on Dutch Village at 3.20am, that would put him at that intersection around 3.56am. Investigators believe that he was killed in the location that he was found, so that means that his attack happened sometime between 3.56am and 4.10am when he was found. It's about a five-minute walk from that intersection to the nearest park, which is the Sheffield Park. If no suspicious group of kids were apprehended in association to this attack, then it seems likely that they found a place to hide momentarily, and this park would be the best location since there aren't a lot of other spots to go in the area. That means that they likely would have left before 4.05 a.m. This leaves them with approximately a nine-minute window to attack Jonathan and flee the scene. At this point, they could either have been following him and chose this location to attack, 
or they were prowling the area and happened upon Jonathan at that intersection. Whatever the case, the attack must have happened pretty quickly so that no one would see them. This is a very bold attack because this road is fairly large, so the chances of a car passing by really aren't that low. When police arrived on the scene, one of the officers reported that they had seen the gang out that night as they drove to the scene. Investigators say that the murder squad has been on their radars for a while and that they are working on a case against them. Members of the gang have reportedly been taken in for interviews and interrogations, but there isn't sufficient evidence to positively link them to this murder. As far as police have reported, the gang has since disbanded, but all reports on their investigation into the murder squad have come from 2006, and there has been no update since then. Investigators on the case say that they are just one or two pieces of evidence away from the arrest. In 2020, a plea to the public was put out by Jonathan's parents and the Halifax Regional Police begging for information on the now 15-year-old murder of Jonathan Reeder. In this request, there was no mention of the murder squad or potential suspects, and they were just looking for any information from the public. I don't know if that means anything, but I thought I'd mention it. If you have any information on this case, please contact the Rewards for Major Unsolved Crimes program at one 888 710-9090. They are currently offering up to a $150,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. Keep safe out there. It's cases like this that remind me of the randomness of life and how no matter who you are, there are no guarantees that you won't be a target of an attack. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shelley Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.